Greetings. This is Uli and Gail Chi, and we're here to share with you God's word for today. So hear the word of the Lord from Luke 2, verses 25 to 38. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, thanks be, be to, to God. God. Indeed, thanks be to God. Thank you, Uli, and thank you, Gail, for reading our scripture this morning for us. As we prepare our hearts and as we've heard uh, God's word, and now we prepare our hearts to meditate on that word, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning uh, for your great love for us, once more evidenced uh, in your word, in the way that you reveal to us what it means uh, to live a life of faithfulness, but even more, uh, who you are and in the beauty of our creator. And so, Lord, as we uh, spend time here considering your word, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would fasten those words into our lives, into our hearts with such security that we might go from this place as those who didn't just hear, not even those who just noticed, but rather those who live and respond with grateful hearts and grateful lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to a, a two-week mini-series. We might call that. It's Childhood Stories. Uh, this week we're looking at a childhood story from the life of Jesus. And the next week we'll have, Jesus will be a little bit older, but he'll still be a child. And I'm excited about Haley Ballas coming to preach next week uh, that uh, text, talking about Jesus in the temple as a, as a young child. But this week we're in a story that includes a person named Simeon. So we're introducing this, this fellow named Simeon also to Anna. But let's talk about Simeon for a moment. Uh, let's get uh, ourselves introduced to him. If, you, if you're not familiar with this character uh, or even of this name, the name itself has an old story attached to it. It's a story that's attached to uh, probably a familiar biblical character that you might know of uh, named Jacob. And you'll remember that Jacob, after uh, deceiving his own father and cheating his brother 
out of his birthright, uh, then runs away and lives under the care of a relative named Laban. You can read about this in Genesis chapter 29. When he's asked what he'd like to receive as he's living in that household with Laban and he's working for him, what would you like to receive as compensation? And here's what Jacob desires. He would like to marry one of Laban's daughters, but not the oldest daughter. He wants to marry the youngest daughter, Rachel, uh, in whom he is in love. And so he'll work for seven years uh, so that he could take the hand of Rachel. And of course, when the seven years pass, as the story goes, uh, Laban here tricks him, uh, tricks Jacob, and actually uh, presents to him not Rachel, but the older daughter, Leah, at that point. I suppose being a trickster and swindling people is something that apparently runs in this family. Well, Jacob goes on to work another seven years. So 14 years total, he works another seven years so that he can marry Rachel, the one that he actually loves, which he does. Married to both Rachel and Leah, the storyteller in Genesis underscores the reality uh, that is evidenced throughout this story, uh, which in real time, again, spans 14 years and does so in very stark terms. It says this in verse 29, Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. That's hurtful. That's hurtful. Say whatever you want about customs. Say whatever you want about settings. Or even that it was somehow different back then than it is now. The reality that transcends all of the Bible studies that you could do, all the stories you could tell, all the history you could read, that we see here is that Leah is married to a man who doesn't love her. She's married to someone who doesn't love her. Her husband doesn't love her. And even more so, her husband loves somebody else, and that somebody else is her own sister, who he's also married to. That's a deep feeling of pain and rejection, of disappointment. This is a person that deeply wants to be wanted, somebody who needs consolation. And the scripture doesn't cover this up. It doesn't hide it, doesn't mask it, doesn't create a, a joyous story out of that or anything like that. Instead, what we read in Genesis is that when her first son is born, she declares that the Lord has seen her misery. She says, surely my husband will love me now. That's in verse 32. However, by the time her second son is born, the situation hasn't changed. In Genesis chapter 29, verse 33, we read that a response to the birth of the second child is simply because the Lord heard that I am not loved. He gave me this one too. You can feel the pain of this, of this woman as she's experiencing uh, really troubling things in this life. And in her distress, amidst her misery, she affirms that God has heard her plight and has acted in giving her that child. So she names him one who hears, because the Lord has heard, which is how we get the name Simeon. One who hears. Desperate times call for desperate measures, as they say. By the time Jesus arrives with his parents in the temple, by the time we get to our text here, the nation of Israel, this Jewish people, have been marked by so much pain and suffering, by so much profound disappointment. Here they are under the thumb of yet another nation, 
I'm sure they're asking that question, does God even hear us today? And here comes the one, the one whose namesake, one who hears, enters into the scene and is directed by God. And this one, this Simeon, has himself not only been heard, but he also hears from God. Consider how Simeon's described in our text. Three kind of things to look at here. One is described as being righteous and devout. Righteous, that's how you conduct yourself, what kind of life you lead, how you live your life. And not just any kind of life. The Greek behind uh, this word righteous here suggests a person of virtue, a good person, a person who's living a God-honoring life. That's who the Simeon is, and he's also described as being devout. He's committed to his faith practices. This is, this is someone that you would say has been consistent when it comes to his religious practices. He's faithful to that religion. And he's not the only one who's described as being righteous in the Gospels. In fact, this very same Gospel, this Gospel of Luke, we'll see in Luke chapter 1, that Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, only one chapter earlier, here they are, are described as righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. We also hear that Joseph, Jesus' dad in Matthew chapter 1, is said to be righteous, Matthew 1.19. We hear that the centurion who's standing beside the cross at the end of Luke's gospel, when he's standing there next to Jesus, he says this about Jesus. Certainly this man was innocent. That's what the NRSV says. You'll note that at Luke 23.47 in our translation that there's an alternate reading in the footnote. It says righteous because the word that they're translating there is the same Greek word that has the word being righteous. And then Joseph of Arimathea, the figure at the end of Luke's gospel who tends to Jesus' burial, prepares him for that burial, puts him in, in the tomb. He's described as being righteous. This group of people are good, honorable, faithful people. As Jesus' followers, we too are called to live such lives. If you're wondering about that, you can look at John 8 and Matthew 28, called to obey all that Christ has commanded. Second characteristic that we see of Simeon is that he's waiting. He's waiting. And specifically, Simeon is waiting for what's called the consolation of Israel. But again, he's not the only one described as waiting in the Gospels. The same Joseph of Arimathea, who was described as righteous at the end of Luke, is also described as waiting for God's kingdom. Jesus encourages his followers in Luke chapter 12 by saying, be like those who are waiting for their master. So we see this idea of waiting. And Anna, the prophet at the end of our own text, this prophet who shows up in the courts, who's glorifying God, who's praising God, is said to speak about the child to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, this idea of looking is an idea of waiting, where these people are waiting for something to happen. So Jesus' followers live righteous lives, and we also see that Jesus' followers also wait. Now, this past Advent season reminded us of this. We hear these themes over and over and over again throughout Advent. But in our day and age, waiting is not easy. And I know this personally. I've just I was been thinking about waiting throughout Advent. I've been thinking about it uh, as I'm reading through this text and preparing for the sermon. And I realize that I'm on YouTube and I'm watching a video and a commercial comes up and I grow impatient for the commercial to end so that I can return to my video. The commercial lasted 30 seconds and I'm already losing my mind. And so we think uh, about our own time. It might be getting worse, our ability to wait and to be patient. But waiting is difficult. 
And perhaps knowing that people have struggled with this kind of larger waiting, not just for a commercial, but waiting for something big, transformational thing to happen, that righteousness and justice would prevail in the world, that people have been struggling with that weight throughout human history, that might help us in our day and age. It might help us to see in our own generation that there is a struggle here, that it's something to be contended with. But even more, what we see in these lives is that what we're waiting for is worth the wait. And Simeon here believes this. But what exactly is this consolation of Israel that he's waiting for? What is this thing that's called this consolation? Well, looking back into Isaiah, and again, in the new year, we're actually going to do a series on Isaiah uh, over a bunch of weeks. But in Isaiah, which has been described as the fifth gospel because it has uh, so many uh, verses and and terms that show up in the gospels themselves, but also uh, ancient uh, Christians would look at that and say, wow, this this reads like the Jesus story. It's so closely related to that. They called it a fifth gospel here. But in in Isaiah, uh, there's a backstory here that describes what Simeon and these people are waiting for. And what we find in the first part of Isaiah, that first uh, 39 chapters, is a people that are soon to be conquered and taken into exile. But when chapter 40 comes into play, they have now returned. And having endured great suffering, having endured hardship, having endured struggle, they long for a better future. Everything they've seen is misery. But where and when and who will bring that future to them? Who will bring that relief? And that's where Isaiah 40 begins. Comfort, O comfort my people, says our God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And Isaiah 40 marks the consoling of a nation. Comfort to a people who were seemingly lost to exile, but were never really forgotten. And this consolation comes from God. Now fast forward to the time of Simeon's generation. And the same people group, as we said, have suffered under the burden of so many nations. And now they're suffering under the burden of, of Rome, who now has them under their thumb. And so Simeon waits, but not just for words. He's not looking for a hallmark response here. What he's looking for is something that is real power real substance to the promise of consolation. And this people will look to other places in the prophets as well. They look to Amos chapter 9, the restoration of David's fallen booth, which is what is promised. A time when, and I put this in quotes because right from the text, the mountains shall drip of sweet wine. Now if you remember Jesus' first miracle in John's gospel, he's at the wedding at Cana. And what does he do? He transforms water into wine. It's communicating that that time has come. That time of redemption and restoration has arrived in him, in his ministry. That has come in his lifetime because he is the Messiah. But Simeon doesn't know that. This miracle will happen later on in Jesus' adult years. This is much earlier. Our story is Simeon sees a child, a baby, who's brought into the temple courts. And here he is living into that promise. Simeon living into the promise of the end of Isaiah 40 that those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
The third characteristic that we see in Simeon is one that uh, shows up for us, uh, not just in Simeon, but in others, is this idea of, of being a Holy Spirit guided. The Holy Spirit's upon Simeon. And again, he's not alone. Luke chapter 1, the yet-to-be-born John the Baptist is described as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Later in that same chapter, Mary's pregnancy is described as being the result of the Holy Spirit. And as we read throughout the Scriptures, we read throughout Luke and we read into Acts, we find people, even going back to the Old Testament, we find people who are filled with the Spirit, who are empowered to be witnesses, empowered to be prophets, empowered to be artisans and craftsmen, when we look back at the time of the tabernacle, or even empowered to be warriors. And Luke will continue that theme, that spirit uh, theme where the spirit is at work in the lives of people here in Simeon's life, but later in Acts that that spirit will be at work in the lives of people of all kinds of generations, ages, and stages who gather together all kinds of nationalities that the Spirit, like in Joel chapter 2, will be poured out upon all people, young and old. Well, let me pause here for a second, uh, because we, we hear that kind of empowerment. I know when I was growing up in a kind of a Pentecostal tradition, uh, we hear the, the Spirit's empowerment, and, and, and you kind of think about what, what would be the benefit there for us? Well, there's an old study that was done called the Invisible Gorilla, and I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. Uh, but what the study was, was it was deter- to determine what we actually see. If we're really paying attention, if we're really focused on something, uh, how does that limit our ability to see things? And they ran a series of, of different experiments, uh, one in which they actually have uh, people dribbling a basketball and they're passing it back and forth, and a gorilla literally walks by, a person in a gorilla suit. And they asked people watching the video as they're counting things on the video if they noticed the gorilla, and a, a number of people did not notice that. Another one of their thought experiments was uh, to have uh, someone come and ask for directions, and as they did, people passed by carrying a door, and one of the door carriers switched with a person asking directions, and they were walking off, and now it's a different person standing in front of the person who's asking directions, and 50% of the people didn't realize that the person had changed that was asking them for directions. So it's this really unusual, uh, really, uh, I think it's really, it messes with you a little bit when you realize that you're like that, um, that that's a characteristic of people. But here's one of the experiments that you can do at home right now, is take your thumb and go like this. You take your thumb and then focus in on your thumb. If you just stare at, the, at your thumb uh, and you look at that, and now keep staring at your thumb, but try to look outside and try to take note of the things outside that while keeping your focus on your thumb. And what you notice is, in doing this is the things outside your thumb are a little bit blurrier than your thumb. Your thumb is much more clear, and the, everything else in your field of vision is blurry. Um, and that's really because our ability to focus, our one thing that we see, uh, is made up a lot of different points that we kind of gather together in our brain, but we really can only see this much. Think about how much we miss in that. Here's the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see that with Simeon here. Our vision is this small. But Simeon, empowered by the Holy Spirit, allows him to see something incredibly huge. He's able to see a Messiah in a little baby. He sees the little baby, but he sees this about that baby. He sees that it's the coming Messiah. Simeon, who was in the same shoes that you and I are in, is filled with the same Holy Spirit that's promised to us. That this encounter in the temple courts is not only an encounter that was set up by God, that God moves him to that place, but God also allows him to see with new eyes this consolation that he's been waiting for. 
And that is significant. We don't know Simeon's age from this text, but we do know that he is waiting. And we know that Anna here is on the older side as she is advanced in years there. And so looking at our own, own lives, and even looking at my own life personally, as I was reflecting on this text, when I was younger, the temptation for me was to believe that I had all the answers, that I knew a lot more than I actually did know. But now growing older, the temptation now has moved to, I've been there and I've done that. I've seen everything that can be seen. And both of those temptations are wrong. Both of those need a little help. God gives us new eyes at all ages. God reveals and shows us things that we couldn't see or things that we thought we had seen. God helps us to see that in this baby of Christmas, like Simeon, we have the consolation, the Messiah, the one who comes that transforms and renews lives, the one who brings hope to us in our lives. And that's the gift of Christmas. It's a gift of eyes that have been opened up. It's a gift of eyes that recognize that God is not only with us, but God is for us. It's a recognition that in Christmas we can internalize this, that this can become part of our story, part of our life. It's a quote by Helen Keller uh, who knew something about being blind. I think we know Helen Keller, and we know that she knew something about what it meant to be blind. She says, the only real blind person at Christmas time is he who has not Christmas in his heart. So we're called during this season to be a people who have Christmas in our heart, but even more importantly, to be a people who have Christ in our very being in our very identity. So I close with this this morning. We're in a season, and I know we rush from holiday to holiday during this season. We're in the Christmas season, as I noted at the outset of our worship service, but we're also in the season of making resolutions. We're, a, we're getting ready for New Year's, and I don't know if you make resolutions or not. I want to encourage you that this year, let's, make, let's together make some resolutions here. I remember, reminded a couple years ago, I got an email uh, sent right around this time of year that came to my inbox that had the subject line that said, jumpstart your resolutions. Right, it was right across it. Jumpstart your resolutions, getting you ready for the new year. And the body of the email included this headline, start off the year light. Start it off light. So it was kind of a weight loss kind of uh, email. It was encouraging you uh, to get maybe do some healthy eating. I think that's what this email was doing. It was encouraging you to eat healthy uh, so that you could lose some weight. And, and just tons of people do that. They think resolution, let's do some more exercise, let's eat differently. The strange thing was that this email was sent to me by Chick-fil-A. That that's, that's who sent it to me. So it it's, says a little bit about my own resolutions, the fact that I get emails from Chick-fil-A. Um, but we can do probably a better resolution than that. Let me give us a few from, from Simeon here. The first one is this. Like Simeon and all the other characters that we see throughout the Gospels, the ones who are Jesus followers, who are described as being righteous, devout, and waiting. Let's be those people. Let's be those people this year. Let's be the ones who strive to live a just and righteous life. Let's strive to be devout in our practices, a reflection of the sense that we truly want to be those who are God-pleasers, who are living into that obedient life, who trust God at God's word. And so we live towards that righteous and devout life, and we wait upon the Lord. We're like those folks at the end of Isaiah who are waiting upon the Lord. 
Character matters. Faithfulness is key and it's important. We don't live this way because Santa's watching, right? That, that season's past. We don't live that way because there's an elf on a shelf who's spying on us, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the right way to live. In, in light of what God has shown us, this is the type of life we're to inhabit. So let's live like Simeon. Let's live righteous and devout, uh, waiting lives. The second thing is this, is in that waiting, to be consoled, to be comforted by Jesus. To be consoled, to be comforted by Jesus. In the new year, to allow God to do that important work of transformation in our lives. To console us that we might know the Messiah and the Messiah's power. That we might know the worth of the Son of God in our own lives, in our own hearts. And so that for you, it might mean an invitation that God would come to be your salvation. The one who literally is God's salvation would be your salvation. Make that your prayer each day. And this is not, this is not a, a kind of prayer that says we're going to give our heart to Jesus day after day after day, but it's also that prayer. We're going to commit ourselves. We're going to ask God to do that, continue to do that good work in us, that transformation work. Not because, not because simply we need it, which we do, but because God desires to do that work in you and I. God's love for us is, is so vast. It's so big. And we see that in Christmas, that God would go through such length that we might know this love, that we might know this salvation. And so we invite God to continue that good work in our heart and life. And the last one is this, and is an example set to us by Simeon, but also set to us by Anna and by so many characters throughout the Gospels in this Christmas season and throughout the, the Gospel stories, that we would praise God that we would speak about the child. That's what the shepherd's response was. And here's what Anna's response is too, singing praises to God, uh, speaking about the child, speaking about this one who's the redemption for Jerusalem. That we would enter into a, a new season, a renewed season of worship and celebration in the new year. That we would come as people that tell the story, that we're reminded of that story, the power of that story as we sing the songs of Christmas in this season, as we sing in the Savior's birth, but even to continue that into 2021, that we too might live lives of worship, that we might live individual lives of song, that we would proclaim the mystery of God, the mystery that is shown to us in Christ, that we remember the story in the new year, and that we remember it beyond that year and the years to come. Knowing that we are a people that are loved, a people who are recipients of God's grace, a people that strive to be revealers of that grace. We also know that God has heard us. We know that God hears us. We know that God loves us. May God's blessing be with each one of us. May God's blessing be with each of you in the coming year. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this morning. We thank you that you've set before us examples of people's lives not simply as biographies for us to model our lives after, but much more for us to really see your work in their lives, for us to see the way that you have interacted with them, that you've been faithful to them. And Lord, by us seeing your faithfulness there, we can know that you are faithful here. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for that comfort that that brings. And Lord, on this day, as we prepare for a new year, as we continue in this Christmas season, we ask, uh, Lord, that you would help us 
knowing that we are frail and weak, that our commitments are small, but we have one who is indeed faithful. And so we come to you, the faithful one, that you might restore in us a hope, a faith, a life of obedience, that we might give grateful response to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.